You are listening to the Krika Lecture Series podcast, produced by the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This and other Krika podcasts are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. For more information about Krika's lecture series and public events, visit our website at krika.wisc.edu. Matthew Kendall is Assistant Professor of Polish, Russian, and Lithuanian Studies at the University of Illinois at Chicago, where he teaches courses on Soviet prose, early Soviet cinema, modernism, and media theory, among others. His research broadly explores the various intersections, relationships, and rivalries that formed between literary writing, popular filmmaking, and mechanical recording technologies in the 20th century. His book project, which I think has the coolest book title I've heard all year for sure, Revolutions Per Minute, Sound Recording and the Soviet Creative Imagination, is a cultural history of Soviet sound recording that explores recording technology's impact on literary and cinematic production in the first half of the Soviet century. He has published on topics including Soviet 3D cinema and Russian digital games in the Russian Review and Russian Literature, And he is an essay forthcoming in Slavic Review that develops a lineage of Soviet noise in the works of Viktor Shklovsky. His talk today is titled Revolutions Per Minute, Sonic Inscription, Soviet Writing, and Mikhail Rom's Oral Stories. Um, Thank you, Gabby. And thanks so much to everyone for coming. I know that this is sort of a last minute scheduling. And I appreciate you taking a chance on my talk, uh, turning out on a day with pretty inclement weather. And also just to note, you know, it's been an absolutely gutting two weeks, just in terms of global news and national news. And I really appreciate that you're all coming out and listening to a talk that, um, you know, I think arguably has very little to do with some of these super pressing and important issues in our time. So thank you. Um, also, just a quick thanks again to, to Gabby for beginning the process of inviting me, but also for Krika for supporting this, and uh, the support from Jennifer and the staff has been really helpful. Um, I also need to thank Pavel Molubev and Galina Polikarpova, who have served as an extremely helpful pair of archival eyes and ears for me in Russia over the past two years when I've been working on this project. So, um, I promised you to talk about Mihal Rum today, and you will absolutely hear one. But I thought that before presenting an analysis of my object, which are Rome's audio memoirs, uh, in some circles very well known, and in others almost entirely unknown, it would be helpful to begin with some framing, particularly because what I'm going to share with you today currently serves as the conclusion to my book project, Revolutions Per Minute, which um, Gabby very kindly uh, uh, expressed appreciation for the title. So I'll do what many talks do, and I'll start with a quotation. Um, One reason that we do this, I think, is because there's something gratifying about repeating words that were spoken before us. Because it keeps hope alive, and perhaps a self-indulgent hope at that, that our speech, too, might also be so lucky as to someday take on permanency through repetition. I'm annoyingly speaking about quotations in the abstract, because I'll eventually show that the subjects of my talk today so seriously believed in the unique power of capturing and playing back that sound recording promised that they transform these features into a fundamental technique in their creative practice as Soviet artists. So, they've actually inspired me to begin my talk with three quotes. The first quote comes from the famous Soviet avant-garde visual artist, Elisitsky, who you likely know from his Prony. Uh, in 1926, Elisitsky wrote an essay called Kultura Zhilya, The Culture of Housing, which was published in the journal Streitsyna Promyshlenost, The Industry of Construction. 
There he puts forward a common constructivist argument about the impact that domestic objects could have on the structure and perception of their inhabitants' relationship with the world, writing that, quote, forms of housing are material expressions of the reality of a new everyday life, and they demand our attention. Elisitsky goes on to argue that future design should concern itself with only the four essential furnishings of the home in a socialist state, a mattress, a folding chair, a table, and a gramophone. The second quote was put to paper nearly 30 years later, in 1952, just one year before Stalin's death. It comes from a letter written by the photographer, ethnographer, and sound recording hobbyist Leonid Volkovlanit, who was writing to the Soviet novelist Lev Kassel for help. Volkovlanit had been arrested in the 1940s, his spine had been broken in a labor camp, and he was serving out the rest of his sentence in a psychiatric hospital. He asked Kassel, a novelist with powerful connections, to help him escape his carceral stay, and tried to relay the gravity of abuses inflicted upon him. Volkovlanit wrote, quote, You very likely know that I've lost absolutely everything. My health, my drawings, my manuscript collection, among them two original manuscripts by Vladimir Vyakovsky, mm -hmm. and half of my sound recording archive, including the entire card catalog that accompanied it. The third concluding quote of this triptych is a stanza from Alexander Galich, the Soviet guitar poet, or guitar bard, as Galich and other artists like to call themselves. In 1966, Gajic crouched over a Yauza 20 magnetic tape recorder and sang a song about what his music meant to his audience. He sang the following words into the machine. No theater pit, no box seats, no circle tier, no clock raving epileptically. There's just a Yauza tape recorder. That's it. That's all we need. When Gajic finished the song, somebody stopped the tape recorder. Could have been Gajic himself, but he was often recorded by strangers or other people who made space for his quasi-illegal performances in their homes. The sound that made it onto the tape was named Were No Worse Than Horace, Munipuja Garazzi, and it was then handed off to its next owner to be copied and distributed in an underground network that was known as Magnitizdats, a riff on Soviet underground publishing commonly known as Samizdats. There was thus the master tape of Galich's song that many copies of it that made up a diffuse network. At worst, being caught with Galich's tapes might land the owner in prison, depending on the mood of whoever found them. <laughs> Threats of punishment, however, were typically mitigated in exchange for any more information about who was manufacturing and producing the plethora of bootleg recordings that flooded Soviet life. So, I think it's fair to say that these quotes seem completely unrelated to each other. An artist of world-famous renown, Elisitsky, offers an opinion about furniture and socialism and happens to accentuate the gramophone. The virtually unknown Volkovlanit writes a eulogy for his shattered life through the prism of lost possessions, particularly his lost sound recordings. The singer Galich, although not officially supported by the Soviet state at the time, went on to become a foundational figure within the culture of the Thaw era, and his songs are still enjoyed by many Russian speakers today. Despite the dissonance that we might hear from the friction that results from forcing these contexts together, I want to suggest that these speakers do share a common thread. Each of them names and celebrates the potential for social, personal, or artistic benefit that sound recording facilitates. For me, these quotations chart a symbolic roadmap that plots the rough beginning and ending of the story I tell in the book project, Revolutions Per Minute. There, I contend that sound recording had a fundamentally different impact on Soviet art from other forms of mechanical recording. In particular, it allowed for the cultivation of new conceptions of authorship, attention, archive, and representation. My talk today will, will focus mostly on the concepts of authorship and archive through a reading of Rome's audio memoirs, but I'm happy to talk about the other two concepts in the Q&A if there's time, and I'll also be speaking tomorrow at 1 p.m. Yes. for musicology, mostly on the concept of representation. 
There is, of course, a well-known story that we often tell about the impact of mechanical recording on Soviet art. The most common figures you feature there are the architects of uniquely Soviet documentary movements, such as Zygavertov or Sergei Tretakov, who used the mechanical recording methods of photography and cinema to produce documentary arts, or works as they might call them, that would replace everyday life with their truer form of mechanically mediated reality. But the Soviet avant-garde's faith in the idea that visual material could build a simulacrum of Soviet life did not escape what scholars like Jonathan Crary and Michael North have characterized as a distrust of optical media that emerged in the 20th century. The skepticism that was somewhat ironically motivated by techniques like cinematic, cinematic montage itself, which emphasized the contingency of vision by negating any notion of its essentialism. On the contrary, I want to show that by the middle of the 20th century, sound recordings like those of Galich's music took on the status of documents that blurred the line between making art and bearing witness much like the documentary genre itself, both because of their easy reproducibility, but also because of their appeal to an affected sonic sincerity. If we return to Gadich's song, we see that it serves as a particularly illustrative emblem of this phenomenon. It was typical for Gadich to mix errata of the Soviet everyday with more serious themes in his lyrics, but the loudest echo here, not only for serious readers of Russian poetry, but many others, is undoubtedly Alexander Pushkin's Exegi Monumenta. The poem features one of Pushkin's most quoted opening lines, I've reared a monument not built by human hands, which rewrites the 30th Horatian Ode by pitting it against the background of Russian romantic textual irony. Pushkin's poem recognizes that the material pages that house it will someday disintegrate. It is only language itself that continues to circulate his words, a non-material monument. Gaidich's song suggests something similar, but specifically about sound recording. It acknowledges its own striving for its eventual alternative, fractured, anti-monumentality and thus an alternative archive, structured precisely via ephemeral circulation and precarious permanency. Like Pushkin's paper, sound recordings could be seized or they could disintegrate, but the ability to rapidly reproduce them for future listening promised an uneasy permanency that questioned its own staying power at the same time. The stakes of this kind of reading become clear when we consider what it means to explore the specificity of the Soviet case. Rather than relying on a tautological justification for Soviet specificity in and of itself, I want to show that the Soviet case offers a unique mix of a historical avant-garde tradition that, at least in my talk today, resurfaces alongside a new politics of memory during the era of de-Stalinization. Taken together, these two forces encouraged many artists to adopt the newly available medium of sound recordings to find spaces of both expression and circulation that were outside of the official discourse of the Soviet Union. If we compare this, for example, to the concepts, or excuse me, the context of the mid-century American avant-garde, we find that artists like John Cage were deeply <laughs> averse to recording because it represented the loss of spontaneity, presence, and context that performance entailed. There's no better example than Cage's infamous unrecordable piece, Four Minutes and 33 Seconds, but also say and consider William Burroughs' cut-up experiments with magnetic tape loops, which treated sound recording as an alchemical device that produced alternative, unreliable realities that had little to no relationship with our own. So I split the remains of my lecture today into two parts. The first will offer a brief critical history of sound recording in the Soviet Union, which will specifically consider the tensions that emerge between sound recording and literary writing. And the second presents my case study of the film director Mihal Rom's recorded memoirs from the late 60s, Oral Stories, or Usni Raskazi. Uh, Rome's is a curious form of life writing. He recorded his voice onto hours of cassette tape, and the results served as a personal archive as much as it did a discursive challenge to Soviet power 
meant for immediate distribution within his small network of friends and family. Um, I'm also going to talk a bit in this section about a project associated with Rome that's probably his most famous film outside of Russia called Everyday Fascism. So what is sound recording? It seems like a simple question, but it's actually quite complex. And for this section, most importantly, I want to ask, how is it different from writing? It makes sense to start by looking at what anyone likely thinks of when they hear the phrase sound recording, the production and distribution of musical records. What I'm showing you now is a set of photographs taken in the summer of 2021 by Pavel Golubov, which capture what remains of the Aprilovka sound recording and vinyl record manufacturing complex, located not far outside of Moscow. The factory was constructed and began operation in 1910, and it was extremely busy for much of the Soviet Union's history, where roughly two-thirds of the country's vinyl discs and eventually magnetic tapes were produced. As the specially designed tombstone indicates, Aprilovka went fully defunct in 2003, and although a private investor declared their interest in reopening the complex in 2009, likely in response to the height of contemporary interest in vinyl record production and collecting, these plans never came to fruition. Today, the site has been all but abandoned. The local museum has very few visitors, and that tombstone I just showed is the clearest marker of what happened there and all that remains. Hmm. Perlovka was intended to be revered as an achievement of Soviet industry and planning, but it struggled to meet the cut for much of its operating history. Soviet recordings were said to exhibit a significantly lower quality than their Western counterparts, and official logs of the factory's meetings with the Ministry of Culture detailed heated debates over what to prioritize in Soviet record production. Music, literary readings, or speeches from Soviet politicians. This, for example, is a set of recordings of Stalin's speeches, distributed as if they were a hardbound book, and often prioritized for printing in factories like Aprilovka. And if this interests you, Keep your eyes on the next issue of Slavic Review, where Gabriel Cornish writes about the history of recordings of Lenin's speeches. Near the end of World War II, however, the industry was ready to give up on creating its own devices for quality audio playback. In a letter from 1945, the Aprilovka factory was given permission by the Ministry of Culture to order huge amounts of patophones from France to both distribute and study in order to improve Soviet devices. Similarly, after the war, a committee in charge of perfecting Soviet sound recording successfully completed a heist that involved smuggling high-resolution photographs of West German discs back home to the Soviet Union so that they could closely study what made discs abroad sound better. Prior to this, the quality of domestic records had been scored on a relatively opaque system, and you probably can't see this very closely, but these are records of uh, listeners describing exactly what they heard as a kind of... Um, uh, rubric for the quality of records and then putting a plus mark uh, if they agreed and leaving it empty if they didn't and um, they're very very unclear categories. So there are many issues with the human labor that stood behind sound recording practices as well. Some employees were known to simply enter the studios at Aprilovka and use whatever equipment or materials on hand that they could find however they wanted. A wasteful use of hard-earned materials. Shellac, the primary material for vinyl records, was expensive and Soviet officials found its various investments exorbitant. Projects like wiring the Bolshoi Theater to record its performances, for example, were always much more expensive than initially expected. And much of this financial anxiety led to accusations that investments in sound recording were not paying off. In the 1970s, it was discovered that official collections of the Russian State Recording Archive, a facility that was established with fanfare by Anatoly Lunacharsky in 1932, laid in such disrepair that it warranted a full-scale legal investigation. The proceedings fill five volumes still housed in the Russian Historical Archive. For the story of the often failing institutions that named themselves as the sites of sound recording was always rivaled by amateurs like Volkovlanich or Gadich, who I mentioned at the beginning of my talk. The fusion of these two opposed poles can be found in the many characterizations 
of literary writing that compared the activities of writers to the technology that could capture the speech and sounds around them. Literary dictation, for example, historically assisted a huge amount of literary writers who would often employ female relatives or assistants to transcribe everything they said. And these comparisons did not disappear after the initial emergence of sound recording either. In 1932, the newspaper Kino described Maxine Gorky's knack for literary writing as conducive to the realistic powers of a sound recorder. I followed the lead of scholars like Lisa Gittleman and Friedrich Kittler, who have asked us to think about sound recording as an information storage technique that relies on inscriptions not al alphabetic in nature. Gittleman has shown how the emergence of shorthand in the 19th century, and this is famously Dickens' impossible to read shorthand, <laughs> foreshadowed Thomas Edison's eventual transposition of similar scribbles onto tinfoil, which could then be read by a phonograph needle that produced a corresponding sound. The best example of this concept is Aprelivka's ambition to study those microscopically photographed grooves of German records to eventually ape their quality. As many before me have mentioned, this transposition of spoken language into a new non-alphabetic sign system intersects with the dream of the European and Soviet avant-garde to express and recreate the contents of the world with a fundamentally new set of signs. As it follows, instead of proposing a way that we can read the inscribed groups or strips of magnetized oxide that we often call sound recordings, I'm most interested in exploring where ideas about recording emerge, both in those institutional settings like a Prelovka, but also where they might have otherwise been unexpected. Consider, for example, this 1924 story, The Dictaphone, by the extremely popular Soviet satirical writer Mikhail Zoshenko. This extremely short story is written in the tradition of what Adrian Wanner has called Russian literary minimalism. The writer depicts a crowd that has gathered around a recently imported American dictaphone, which, as the narrator tells us, obediently produces faithful recordings of everything spoken into it. Which of you, said Konstantin Ivanich, would like to say a few words into this ingenious apparatus? Upon which our esteemed comrade, Thigin Vasily, stepped forward, a thin, long sort of fellow who gets a salary of the 60 class plus overtime. Permit me, he says, to try it out. They let him. He went up to the machine, not without a certain agitation, and thought a long time about what he should say. But he couldn't think of anything, and with a wave of his hand, walked away from the machine, sincerely regretting his low level of literacy. Like so much of Zoshinka's work, the story flaunts a series of linguistic misprisions that become quite common after the injection of myriads of new words that appeared in the Russian language with the inauguration of Soviet life, but also with the tremendous social mobility such a thing entails. In the 19th century and Soviet 20s, this type of literary narration was often called skaz, a form of mimicking the speech styles of lower-class subjects for comical effect and arguably poor taste, at which some formalist critics, and even Mikhail Baltin, later called the talisman of Russian literariness. To me, what's important in the dictaphone is its equivalence of recording with literacy. We already know the concerns about public literacy, a major campaign of the Soviet 20s, were significantly more grave in tone than Zoshinka's subjects took them. But it's undeniable that in the dictaphone, Zoshinka's populace sees the act of speaking to their future listeners as a form of communication wholly on par with reading and writing. The hangover of deconstruction, and specifically Derrida's distinction between speaking and writing, has for decades now prevented us from understanding these actions as somehow related theoretically. Partially, the designation of sound recording as an anti-literate technology emerges from literary culture itself. Near the beginning of Vladimir Nabokov's Ben Sinister, for example, the professorial protagonist Krug dissociates when he imagines the psyche of his politically indoctrinated interlocutor as a spinning disc with a needle waiting to be placed onto it. But we know from historians of these technologies, like Lisa Gittleman, that there was no distinction between literacy and popular amusement in the early days of sound recording's use and spread, 
and I'm inclined to suggest that this may once again be the case in our contemporary moment. At risk of flattening the differences between these two eras, I remind us that the widespread practice of audiobooks still substitutes for the practice of visual reading for many people. And if we're to reject this comparison, then we're indirectly telling blind listeners of audiobooks that they've not accessed the same text that we have. Like Gittleman has shown us, for Zoshinka, writing and recording and listening and reading were two sides of the same coin of literacy. The impact of this somewhat oblique comparison of sound recording and writing can be best illustrated through my case study of the Soviet filmmaker Mikhail Rome, for whom magnetic tape became a privileged medium in the later stages of his career. Just in case you don't know, Rome lived a fascinating life. Like many film directors who were born before the cinema transformed into a popular art form, Rome began his artistic career as something other than a film director. Instead, he was a sculptor, and he was nearly 16 years old when Russia's revolution and civil war changed his life forever. In the memoirs that I'll later be quoting from today, Rome reminisces about the moment he realized that sculpting might not be his calling. He was told over a cup of steeped carrots, or substituted for the tea that had been missing from the country for years, that he was unable to properly sculpt human ears. Given widespread shortages of even the most basic goods during his formative years, it was likely unimaginable to Rome that in fewer than two decades, he, a Jewish artist, would be standing at the helm of the Soviet film industry and making use of all the resources available to him there. In the late 30s, Rome was approached by Mosfilm, the main Soviet film studio, with an invitation to direct two historical epics that coincided with the 20-year anniversary of the Russian Revolution, Lenin in October and Lenin in 1918. In histories of Soviet cinema, these films have come to represent everything that is visually and politically abusive about Stalinist cinema. They are often fairly treated as the apotheosis of Soviet cinema's violation of historical reality with inventions of the silver screen, and also its tendency to work past events in the service of legitimating the repressive present. For example, the second film in the series, Lenin in 1918, uses the assassination attempt on Lenin to excuse mass political terror. Audiences in the theater were living through the historical peak of Stalinist terror between the, 19, between the years of 1937 and 1939, the same years that Rome's film debuted. But Rome was far from solely in charge of this project, which was clearly a team effort in many ways. The script was written by Alexei Kopler, who would later find himself in a prison camp after pursuing a relationship with Stalin's daughter. And Rome describes a general sense of anxiety on the set at all times. Indeed, the crew knew that it had to appease more than just the film industry, but actually an audience of one, Stalin himself. They chose to recast the Russian Revolution as a struggle between not only the Bolsheviks and the Russian Empire, but also with Trotsky and an invisible crew of political enemies, who remain mysteriously absent from the action, but which feel ever-present in the background as villains who threaten to prey on the hard-earned fights of the Bolsheviks. Interestingly enough, sound issues were salient from the very beginning. Rome was particularly worried about working with the actor buddy Shukin when choosing how to impersonate Lenin's laugh. The Bolshevik leader had been dead for nearly 15 years, and no one had ever recorded his voice on occasions other than political speeches. Somehow, the team pulled it off. Rome recounts that at the work's premiere, the film strip for Lenin in October ripped 15 times, and the soundtrack did not work for the first 30 minutes of the film. However, neither catastrophe prevented Stalin from immediately calling the film one of his favorites of all time, which placed Rome in nearly permanently higher regard in Stalin's mind. This veneer of political insulation often inspired Rome to take steps that other artists never could. In 1940, he wrote a letter to Stalin that specifically bemoaned what the director characterized as a clear stifling of creative activity within the Soviet film industry, and he clearly implied that it was anti-Semitism. 
that have impacted choices in who was hired and who disappeared in the Soviet film industry. It's one of the clearest announcements of political repressions directly addressed to Stalin that I've ever seen. The resistance he received in these efforts was stiff but hands-on. Stalin responded personally to his letter with a single word, Rezisnitz, asking Rome curtly, explain what you mean. But Rome is not exactly a reliable speaker of truth to power, and he appears to have understood that it was advantageous to present different versions of himself to different interlocutors. As commentators of this letter have pointed out, only a few months passed before he wrote another letter to Ivan Bolshakov, chairman of the Cinematography Committee, in which he extolled how wonderful it was to work in the Soviet film industry. Rome was never blinded by his own luck or the success that it enabled. A close friend of the director, Sergei Eisenstein, Rome was cast to play Queen Elizabeth I in Eisenstein's Ivan the Terrible Part Three. <laughs> Production for the film, however, was abruptly halted after Stalin immediately banned Eisenstein's second part of the trilogy, only a few years after the director had been awarded the coveted Stalin Prize for the first. Footage was believed to have been destroyed, but very little, as we might have seen, was later found. Rome's biography is startlingly unique in comparison with many other Soviet artists. Rome won five Stalin Prizes for his work in cinema while the leader was alive, the highest honor possible for a working artist. But he later admitted after Stalin's death that he was embarrassed to talk about them, and asked his hosts never to bring them up in introductions. Many artists who had collaborated with the state as closely as Rome were often conveniently forgotten after Stalin's death, but Rome remained popular and in demand. The director was thus never wholly in protest, nor was he wholly under the yoke of the state apparatuses that micromanaged his creative output for many years. He existed somewhere in between, always eager to remind his superiors that he existed and had opinions, but never so controversially that he could face severe consequences. This leads me to Rome's oral stories. Stalin died in 1953, and the story goes that Rome fell into a deep depression in the late 50s, refusing to make a film for several years while he reassessed a body of work that he now felt he'd been compelled to make, and that he personally capitulated to the demands of the state. Rome's daughter has recounted an episode in which her mother told the crestfallen filmmaker to snap out of it and to get some writing done, to which the accomplished screenwriter responded, quote, I'm no writer. You know I'm unable to write, end quote. In 1966, while he was back at work on a project that brought him to East Germany, Rome purchased a cassette recorder that had been smuggled in from the West, writing later about the choice, quote, I bought a tape recorder, and it's really good. The damn capitalists won again, end quote. Yeah. During the final five years of his life, Rome started to spend long amounts of time at his dacha, where he would hunch over the tape recorder in his attic and record hours of recollections that he eventually called the oral stories. What Rome produced is a fascinating oral history of the early Soviet period. Almost no one is spared in the director's wicked sense of humor in a series of what often feel like uncomfortably honest portraits of famous, famous Soviet personae. In one episode, for example, Rome tells the story of being invited to a private meeting with Stalin. The drama leading up to their encounter is palpable. Rome was sure that the meeting with him would, uh, excuse me, Rome was sure that the meeting would be his last with anyone, but he's surprised to be invited to a screening of Chaplin's City Lights with Stalin and only two other viewers in a private screening room. The story ends unexpectedly when Chaplin's film concludes. Stalin breaks out in tears at the finale and moves to awkwardly stand in the corner, quietly sobbing, while Rome watches the remainder of the film and pretends not to notice. At a central committee meeting in the late 1950s, Rome observed how Nikita Khrushchev, Stalin's replacement, somehow ended up last in line to use the urinal in between sessions. Everyone around the new general secretary insisted that he move to the front of the line, but Khrushchev, visibly uncomfortable, staunchly refused, citing the Soviet Union's commitment to class equality. 
Everyone's bathroom break is thus transformed into the most stressful of their lives. <laughs> While these anecdotes are certainly a function of Rome's biting sense of humor, he also clearly believed that it was the tape recorder himself, excuse me, itself, that allowed for the tone of these recollections to take shape. When you write, Rome begins the series, you forget about what it was you wanted to say. The power of what sound recording did for Rome's oral stories comes through saliently in a brief excerpt that I'll play now, where he narrates the installation of an official from the NKVD, the pre-KGB, in the Soviet film industry in 1938, when Rome was working on the epic series of films about Lenin. Um, and so, just open my water, and get a bit and then we'll go line by line here. Проходит дня два, звонок мне. Секретарша говорит, Семен Семенович просит вас завтра в два часа явиться к нему. Ну, естественно, завтра ровно в два, я как штык. Секретарша идет к нему докладывать. Выходит человек высокий, костлявый, в синих бриджах, сапогах, в синей гимнастерке. Плечи такие острые. Туловище поворачивается вместе с головой. Ротка улыбается, кривит, прит нагло. Голова, как яйцо, большая, длинная. Уши торчат и очки темные. Напоминало, что так смахивает длинные шеи с кадыком. И голова ворочается вместе с туловищем. Первый в стене довольно зловещая. Глядит на меня. Вы кто? Я говорю, я Ром. Режиссер, вот вы меня вызвали. Когда? Два часа. А сейчас сколько? Два часа. Четырнадцать. Четырнадцать. Два часа это ночью бывает. А днем бывает четырнадцать. Вы это на всякий случай усвоите, товарищ. Режиссер. Вы творческие работники, к порядку не привыкли. Будет порядок. Днем 14 часов, ночью 2 часа. Немножко задыхаясь, он говорит так, задыхание. Ночью 2 часа. Так. И вы что ж не ночью являться? Да нет, больше не надо. Я уже. Посмотрел на вас. Все, можете идти. Вернулся, пошел. Странный человек. Какой довольно необыкновенный. So the story is very simple and seemingly unworthy of close attention. But the argument that Rome chooses to play out here, a disagreement over how to speak properly and how to read a clock, gives us the audio equivalent of a parallax view, when two people look at the same thing from two different perspectives. It's indicative of the kind of manouche that Rome found particularly generative when he spoke about them on tape, because it allows him, as we heard in this recording, to imitate the voice of someone else while still maintaining his own authority over the story's punchline. This performance of two competing voices is thus more than a simple dichotomy of Soviet power versus its subjects compelled to obedience. Rome is speaking over the dichotomy itself, becoming chronicler and enforcer of a corrected version of events. While my reading of this scene clearly risks overcomplicating the relatively simple contents of this story, I wouldn't think about it as a model. 
oh yeah, sorry, I wouldn't think about it as a model um, for Rome's engagement with Soviet authority if I were not also aware that Nikita Khrushchev, the subject of Rome's story about the urinal, who was also the general secretary of the Soviet Union from 1958 to 1964, was recording his own audio memoirs contemporaneously. The story goes that Khrushchev couldn't write after having dropped out of elementary school. When his health rapidly declined, he demanded that his assistants bring a tape recorder to his side so that he could dictate his life story. Whether or not Rome knew about this, and I sincerely doubt that he did, seems less important to me than the fact that these two men shared an idea. Rome knew what it was like to have projects scrubbed from the record, and Khrushchev was similarly aware of the fragility of archive in the Soviet Union if someone like Stalin returned to power. Putting words to tape, which could be stored, but also easily copied, was the safest way to at least attempt to become permanent. For this familiar with Russian literary history, this competitive form of discourse between artists and power in the 20th century might also remind you of Alexander Zhelkovsky's controversial argument about the relationship between the poet Anna Akhmatova and Stalin. Akhmatova, according to Zhelkovsky, pursued a form of poetic and public self-mythologization that directly competed with Stalin's political power. She not only tried to upstage Stalin at public appearances, and perhaps the most dangerous moment of her life was when she once received a louder applause than him, but in her rewriting of Soviet history that places herself, the poet chronicler, at the center, she emulated his grasp over historical truth. I want to suggest that Rome is engaging with the medial of Soviet politics, excuse me, the medium of Soviet politics in a very similar way, but in this case, not even figuratively so. He was simply using the same tools and techniques that the Soviet authorities would use to capture the political leaders' voices. Rome was putting his own voice on tape as another great organizer of Soviet life, diluting the monopoly of an Althusserian voice of power into a collection of voices. In the introductory statement to the oral stories, Rome coyly suggests, I don't know who will hear these, but we can imagine that his hours of address to a still absent listener projected precisely who he wanted to hear, uh, the inhabitants of the Soviet future. Importantly, there's a real precedent in Rome's creative biography to take seriously that it'd be interested in the uses and abuses of historiographical changes, but also how fragile they were. The oral stories were not Rome's only foray into using sound recording as a way of exercising his artistic and political authority, nor do I believe they're where he first considered the power this technology had for his work. Before putting the oral stories on tape, Rome's vocal stylings were first popularized through what is easily his best-known film in the West, the 1965 documentary, Everyday Fascism. In the early 60s, Rome was approached with an idea and script for a film about the rise of Hitler by Maya Turovskaya, who eventually became one of Russia's most celebrated film critics and who died in Germany just three or four years ago. The project started as a fiction film that would follow an unremarkable citizen of the Third Reich because it escalated towards war. Images and clips from a trove of propagandistic and private films and photographs that Soviet soldiers had recovered after invading Berlin would be cut into the narrative. In an article about the production of everyday fascism, Rome accounts what he was told as the genesis of the film's material. Soviet soldiers in Berlin had lit a fire, which they were likely delighted to feed a stash of private photographs of Hitler that they'd found. <laughs> but a Soviet officer told them to stop and instructed them to gather all of the materials and an accompanying nearby trove of Nazi film and to export it to the Soviet film industry back home. Quote, I'm really indebted to our officer in Berlin. Rome writes, I can only assume that he was a good and intelligent person. Even in those difficult days, they thought about the future. This is an important and rare quality, end quote. As production continued, however, Rome and his team had severe doubts about whether it made sense to mix fictional narrative with found footage, 
particularly with footage that pertained to the Holocaust, which very few people in the Soviet Union have even seen by the 1960s. Rome writes, quote, those fictional scenes just started to wear me down. Acting, makeup, decorations, it all felt like art that was too old-fashioned. What was supposed to be dramatic just seemed silly. I couldn't take it seriously, end quote. So the team cut the fictional narrative entirely and agreed to dramatically change the form of the film. It would consist only of found footage, now accompanied entirely by Rome's voiceover, which the team would write together. Everyday Fascism is filled with fascinating choices and sequences that deserve much more attention than I can give them today, but I want to specifically draw your attention to the film's second chapter, where I think we find Rome in the process of understanding that sound recording offered him a route to rival the monumentality of the political regimes that he despised. Примерно в это время в старинном немецком городе был изготовлен особенный, уникальный экземпляр книги Адольфа Гитлера Майнкамф этой Библии германского фашизма. Для этой книги отобрали телят лучшей немецкой породы, ободрали с них шкуры и обработали эти шкуры на старинных станках. Вот перед вами станок 18-го строительства. Мастера, проверенные до десятого колена, изготовили из этих шкур особо прочный пергамент. Бригада художников, специальные души, особым перьем, шрифтом, который обсуждался в десятках канцелярий, от руки переписала эту книгу. Эти кадры взяты нами из культур фильма, который называется «Книга немцев». Вот слышите, Виктор? Это очень длинный культурфильм. Разумеется, мы включили только ничтожную часть кадров. Что до содержания книги, то, пожалуй, жаль, что не все прочитали ее достаточно внимательно. Если бы все немцы вдумались как следует в содержании книги, пожалуй, судьба Германии могла бы стать иной. Бригада горняков спустилась в старинную немецкую шахту, И руками добыла здесь руду. Руда была переплавлена в особых печах. Из нее были изготовлены переплетные доски. Это были листы нержавеющие, притом тугоплавкой стали. Вот их куют. Сейчас их закрепят, и книга будет готова. Она должна была храниться тысячу лет, не испортиться, не потускнеть, не заржать. И ровно тысячу лет должен был длиться Райх Адольфа Гитлера, Третий Райх. Сейчас книгу заключал специальный саркофаг, вот. а затем похоронить его в особом мавзолее. So I'll first say that there are many reasons why this sequence and the film that came for it might have captured Rome's imagination, and why he would devote an entire chapter of the film to it. The first is how recognizably influenced by, or at least how recognizably similar it is, to some of the most important works of Soviet cinema, particularly the constructivist films in Zygadertov. In this ultra-materialist style, the process of making objects is depicted through the cinematic medium itself thus drawing attention to every step of production that would otherwise be physically impossible to witness through time all in one place. The second reason for his interest, however, is more interesting for my purposes today. 
Many commentators of Rome's film later suggested that although everyday fascism was an overtly pro-Soviet work, and as a World War II film, it is technically an overtly pro-Stalinist film, there are significant subtle references that Roman Turovskaya made to the similarities between Soviet life and the history of German fascism they explore. For example, if we replace the special book with the phrase Lenin's body and compare the two mausoleums side by side, the analogy made at the end of this chapter is almost embarrassingly obvious. But it would be just as embarrassing to say that Rome is suggesting that German fascism and Soviet socialism are the same thing. Clearly they're not, and I don't think he's full-throatedly trying to argue that here. What he seems to be saying is this. A misguided aspiration towards monumentality, toward the book or the body that will never decompose, sits at the heart of both of these systems. As Burry's Grace might tell us, the armored man that emerged in the wake of World War I, which was embraced by the historical avant-garde, had now become the armored text of the new media age, or in Lenin's case, the armored corpse. These debates are familiar with those that negotiate the political legacy of the historical avant-garde in Soviet history. And Grace has argued that the demiurgical strains of the Soviet avant-garde laid the groundwork for the total art of socialist realism, and as a result, for the totalitarian politics of Stalinism. The historical plausibility of this idea has been questioned to death, and while I'm not inclined to apply Gross's ideas at face value, this provocative framework has launched a thousand new, often insightful revisions of this claim. Ilya Kukulin, for example, uses Gross's hypothesis of a continuity between the historical avant-garde and the narrowly political art of Stalinism that followed it by lengthening the claim's historical trajectory. Instead, Kukulin argues that the historical avant-garde's greater influence can be found in underground art of the Soviet 60s, where classically avant-garde techniques like montage flourished. In addition to this aesthetic heritage, a contended by the Soviet 60s, sound recording allowed its user to imagine and in fact create a new type of distribution network that created new forms of dialogue with their audiences, one that could make claims to a veracity and authority that optical media had lost by the middle of the 20th century. Rome's position as a voiceover in this scene is not a simple rivalry and overcoming of attempts at monumental permanency by providing some alternative but equal model. Instead, we should notice that when he draws attention to the original clip's announcer, over whom he now speaks at a much louder volume, he replaces the voice that once accompanied this film and demonstrates its ability to be edited, lost, or rivaled in the first place. By recording his own memoirs in parallel to Khrushchev, Rome emulates the discourses of power that he ultimately seeks to speak over. Rome knew from his time working on the Lenin films that visual material was inherently untrustworthy and might simply be tossed into the fire like those photographs in Berlin there were not only truer sound recordings to be made. It was, in fact, his work on everyday fascism that brought Rome to the DDR, where he decided to purchase the tape recorder with which he made the oral stories. And um, this is speculative right now. I don't actually have uh, definitive proof of this, but my hunch is that these tapes, which are cassette tapes, could not be played by Soviet machines at the time. Mm -hmm. And I'll talk a little bit more about this at the end of the talk, but um, I believe that Rome was designing these recordings to only be listened to by his friends and people that he wanted to hear them, I think the set tape showed in the Soviet Union by the late 70s, early 80s at the earliest. So like the singer Alexander Galich, who I cited at the beginning of today's talk, Rome relied on the medium of tape to share his stories with his friends through a distribution network that only sound recording could allow. Of course, having served at one point as the chief visual historian and reinterpreter of the October Revolution, Rome was likely aware that the accounts he saved on his own tapes were fragile. I think, this, I think that this contingency is baked into his project which relies on the sound document's ability to quickly reproduce itself above all, but also questions its own staying power. Nevertheless, with digitization, these recordings accumulated a form of mythology, and they appeared on commercially available vinyl records, likely printed at the Aprilovka plant in the 1980s. 
What Rome seems to have hoped happened, uh, seems to have hoped would happen, did, is that oral memoirs were copied, circulated, distributed in both sonic and textual forms, predating the institution of a Moscow Institute of Oral History in 1988. His voice is another that we can now turn to, but we live in a world that believes in what he was trying to prove about sound recording. So I want to conclude by making um, reference to the main thrust of this talk, which is a kind of proof of concept for my methodological argument. Musicologist Jacek Blaszkiewicz's recent essay, Will Sound Studies Ever Emerged, has asked accurately, in my view, if the characterization of sound studies as an emergent mode of inquiry, something we've called it for over 20 years now, has disincentivized us from fully institutionalizing or legitimating the methods of sound studies as a quote-unquote real field. By now, it's true that the phrase sound studies has gifted what still feels, I think, like a curious toolbox for scholars who can now point to omissions of sonic commentary on the historical record as justification for pursuing a variety of new accounts. My response to this partially is expressed as a disagreement with the idea in Blaszkiewicz's piece that what we now call sound studies could or should transform into some kind of field in and of itself. Its strength, I think, is its true commonality with the modes of inquiry that preceded it and how it offers a kind of formal revisionism which allows for us to reimagine those works of literature, cinema, or even audio memoirs that upon their initial appearances were not treated as objects that had any acoustic ends, even if such things seem obvious to us now. I contend that the history of sound and its mediation should not be siloed, but centered. In fact, I see the discourse of emergence that Blaszkiewicz cites as a productive element for sound studies, if we use the term in the way that Raymond Williams might. This is to say that the emergence of new kinds of mechanical recording and the new relationships that they engender is precisely what attracted Soviet artists like Rome to his cassette recorder in the first place. Instead of having presented a prehistory of the audiobook, I hope to have offered a specific data point for the category of the literary and the cinematic underwent significant changes, but nevertheless mutually reinforced cultural attitudes towards the emergence of a new medium. Rome's were certainly not the first audio memoirs, nor was everyday fascism the first sound footage documentary, but the important role that sound recording played in both of these works points to how earlier modes of production were changing. I'll conclude by reminding you of the second quote that I started this talk with. Compared to Elisitsky, Alexander Galich, and now Rome, very, little known, uh, very little is known about the remarkable Volkov Lanet. He was a friend and great admirer of the poet Vladimir Mayakovsky, and he dabbled in Krajevedinia, a type of Russian ethnography, for which he saw his role as someone who could collect recordings of the variety of languages across the territory of the Russian Empire that were rapidly disappearing. When Volkov Lanet was released from prison, most likely his connection with the writer Lev Kassel assisted him in doing so, like Rome, he became obsessed with sound recording and wrote only about its archival possibilities in two books, one called The Art of Recorded Sound and another called A Voice Preserved for Eternity. The latter book was about recordings of Lenin's voice, probably one of the only suitable topics that Volkov Lanet could write about as a kind of political redemption. And its clear title contradicts his own experience with losing several sound recordings. Unlike what we've been told about the loss of aura that might result from the mechanical reproduction of all forms of art and information, my subjects today, and Rome especially, were as fascinated by its powers as they were by its failures. Thank you.